Well, today we're going to continue our series on Choose Wisely, to which every time I watch that video, I think, some of those people are not choosing very wisely. And I think, you know, I think I was in my 20s, I would have thought that was a wise decision, and some of those I still think are a good decision. Maybe 20 years from now, I won't think are wise. But we're looking at how to make wise choices, and really how to create a framework by which we can get some of the busyness and clutter out of our minds to reflect on what is a wise and unwise decision. One of the things I love to do when I have a decision to make is I love to be out in nature. There's something about communing with my thoughts and connecting with God that helps me clear my mind. And it's one of the things I love to do, because the property right here is next to the Little Miami River, I love to go canoeing down the Little Miami, I love to go kayaking down the Little Miami, I even love to go tubing down the Little Miami. There's something about being out in nature helps me collect my thoughts, think about what I'm thinking about, And even ask God to give me some wisdom. So join me as we take a little float down the little Miami River. I love to go out on a warm day. Throw my kayak in a little Miami and just go. It's the best way I know to unwind. The current pulls me along at an easy speed. It's the most tranquil feeling. I'm as purposeless as a leaf going downstream. Nothing beats it. Last spring, some friends and I took our kayaks to a Class 3 river in West Virginia. Our guide warned us that it was a challenging route. Of course, my buddies and I were quote-unquote experienced, so we really didn't pay much attention. It's only a Class 3. How tough could it be? Well, the answer was extremely tough. We were 15 minutes in before we hit an intense rush of water and picked up speed. I went airborne, crashed hard, Brad lost his hat. The other guys were laughing, but the jokes stopped quickly. Just as we were recovering from that first assault, the river narrowed and began to boil like crazy. I was paddling for my life, getting blasted by a cannon of spray, steering clear of the rocks took everything we had. The next hour was a constant sprint. Paddling like maniacs, muscles on fire, trying to go air and not go under. Gary and Peter flipped over at least twice. The guide was shouting like a drill sergeant, and we lost most of our food and supplies. To be honest, I've never been so scared. And it was only a class three. Ultimately, we made it out fine. No injuries other than a few bruised egos. We can laugh at it now, but in the moment... It was a humbling lesson about the power of the unexpected. The other day, I found an old daytimer for my first real job out of college. It was full of meetings, seminars, and training sessions that seemed super urgent at the time. I can tell by all the exclamation points that each entry was the most important thing in the world. I was so overwhelmed the first few months, felt a lot like those river rapids, getting soaked by a Class 3 job that I was ill-prepared to navigate. Soon the urgency of that new job passed away and other worries came along. Grad school, wedding plans, buying a house, starting a business, becoming a dad. More river rapids and not a lot of time to carefully navigate. Just stay upright, just don't drown. Lately life is more like that slow, peaceful drift down the little Miami. The kids are getting older, work is pretty secure, life is good. But I know that just when the river seems calm, some rapids might be right around the corner. I've learned how to kayak down an actual river, but how can I learn to make good decisions when the river is life? 
Well, I love that song because it talks about the struggle of hearing the voice of truth and making great decisions. And facing the past and the future and trying to weigh all those different options. In fact, when Moody Blues cut that song in studio, the studio guy said, Hey, what do you call that song? The guy said, Well, I'll think about it after. To which the studio person somehow heard Fat Arthur. So that song was named Fat Arthur all the way into the point, not Fat Albert, like, hey, 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 Fat Arthur, right until they released the album, and then they changed the name to The Voice. How do you hear the voice of truth when you face decisions? And that's what we're talking about today, about decision-making, because I think some of the factors that affect us when it comes to a choice really limit our ability to hear the voice of our own heart and certainly the voice of God. One of those factors is fear. The fear of failure, the fear of making a mistake, the fear of doing it wrong, the fear of not doing it fast enough, the fear of doing it too fast. And especially in our culture today, psychologists have studied that decision-making is harder today than ever because of overchoice. Where it used to be you had three choices, and so every time you chose one, you're only eliminating two. Today, whether it's products or big decisions in life, every time I say yes to one thing... I'm saying no to a hundred others. And I have the regret, I have the what if, and how could I, and what about? And God has this really interesting paradigm that allows you to overcome the problem of overchoice. And that's what we're going to look at today. I went to splunking with the kids and my wife in Colorado several years ago. And we come out of this cave and we're right on the top of a mountain. They've actually got a, like an amusement park ride on the side of the mountain where you're actually doing little twirls and spins and this you know, 100, 200 yard drop off. We didn't do the ride, by the way. That was an unwise choice for me. I, I, I don't like spin and puke rides because I spin and puke. So we're looking down from this, uh, this look on this spunky cave we went to, and he goes, oh, do you see that town down there? That's the town of No Name, Colorado. Oh, what's the name of the town? No Name. How did it get its name? Way back in the 1800s, wherever it was, they had a big town meeting trying to discuss what should we name our town. And there was fights and decisions, and they were so worried they'd pick the wrong name. They said, well, tell you what, since we can't come to an agreement... Let's put in the official documents with the state and the country. Just right now, write in no name. And we'll come back when we have more consensus. Well, they came back several months later, and it turned out the bureaucracy and the paperwork to change your town's name, the person who got it wrote no name in the paperwork, and it was so hard to undo, it's still known today as No Name Colorado. They had so much overchoice, they couldn't make a choice, which turned out to be their choice. And when it comes to decision-making, some people get very mystic. Just let go and let God. You don't really know what it means and you don't know what to do, but you're supposed to let go and let God. On the other hand, there's the God gave you a brain and expects you to use it method. And I want to show you today that both actually have some validity and both sides of the spectrum cause problems. If it's just let go and let God, you become very passive in life. If it's all up to you and there's no greater force to help correct if you happen to make a bad decision, you get paralyzed if you think about how much weight is sitting on you. The Bible presents this really middle ground where our part and God's part come together. 
And with the metaphor of the river, it's like this. You need the paddle of your own decisions, the paddle of your own prayers, combined with the current of God's work behind the scenes to know where to go and more importantly, to become who you need to be. And when we learn how to use the paddle and the current, God's part and our part together, we're able to make decisions without being paralyzed by regret and become the kind of people God wants us to be. So like last week, we looked at three tests or three questions we can ask for the decision. We're going to look at three more today. And my hope is that you can have confidence to make good decisions, but even if you don't, you can have confidence that God will even use your bad decisions, your blind spots, to accomplish his ultimate purpose. So number one, the first test or first question we're going to look at is the prayer test, which is, have I prayed about this? And whether you're not sure if God gets involved in life, I am amazed that people don't have those kind of intellectual questions when their child has cancer, when they face a sickness. They're like, you know what, I don't know if it's a God or not, I don't know if he works or not, but I'll take any help I can get, right? If that's true of the big things, why not try it for the small things? And yet I'm often amazed in the spectrum, I'm more on the side of God's given you a brain, make sure you use it that often prayer and inviting God in the process becomes an afterthought, a second thought, a third thought, rather than praying first. We've got a ritual in my house. My son Quinn, every night he goes to bed, so I take him up and we, I tuck him in bed. And every night I do the same thing. I kiss him three times on the forehead. I love you. And it's become a game, because he wants me to kiss him, but he also wants to wrestle. So I'll come in, he'll be like, I, and so I'll go down to kiss him, and he grabs my face, and he's like laughing hysterically, and he wants me to kiss him, and he's holding me off, and I'm like holding him down, I, and I'll wait, and he'll say love, and I'll wrestle myself back in and give him a kiss, love, and, and then you, and then I pray for him. I've been praying the same prayer for eight years. God, thank you for Mr. Quinn. Thank you for what a blessing he is. Give him your mind. Help him find his words. Please help him to get potty trained soon. In Jesus' name, and little Quinn will look up every night and says, Amen. One of the 200 words he has. Now, God has not yet healed his autism and probably won't. But I still pray every night, and he still hasn't been potty trained. I pray and ask God to do those things and ask God to make me the kind of father I need to be to be his dad. So the prayer test. See, what prayer does is prayer sometimes sensitizes me to the current of God's work. God, help me see where you're at work in my son and my daughter. Help me to cooperate with what you're doing in my spouse's life. Help me to see today in my employees or my colleagues where they might be. Who needs an extra word of encouragement, God? Help me to see who might need some comfort. Who might need somebody to take them to lunch? Prayer sensitizes me where I begin to look through my day and say, where might God be working and how can I join him in it? And the Bible brings these two forces together in several ways. The lot, which is like the equivalent in those days of of rolling dice, the lot is cast in the lap. You're making decisions. But every decision is from the Lord. You're casting lots, making choices, but the decisions are actually determined by God. Both forces, my part, God's part. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established by Him. Two parts. You commit your works, and God establishes it or directs them. 
Thirdly, a man's heart plans his way. Planning is important. Strategic thinking is important. You need to plan your way. But the Lord is actually directing your steps. And I want to show you how... Sound like Harry Potter for a second. Um, I want to show you how when you get these two things right, it brings so much freedom because you're not paralyzed by it's all up to me. If I make the wrong choice, it's going to screw up my marriage, screw up my family, screw up the company. It's all up to me. He's just so much weight. It's paralyzing if you really feel it, especially if you fail. It's no wonder we get paralysis analysis if it's all up to us. On the other hand, if it's all up to God... You just get so passive. And we've met people who are spiritual and they just seem very, very unwise and have very magical thinking. Right? So I want to take you again on a little trip with me down the little Miami River as we reflect on how these two forces work together, the mixture of both God's part and our part. Let's watch. You know, I love the river. I love kayaking down it. I love canoeing. I even love uh, tubing down it. I think of God's will a lot like the current of a river. It's powerful and yet subtle. It's unavoidable, yet it also gives you freedom. You got the freedom to try and you know, row upstream or to row with the current downstream. And part of making decisions is discerning the river. In fact, river rats call it that, reading the river. Do I go over the rocks? It's going to be a little bumpy over there. might bruise up the canoe, might bruise up even myself. might have to get up. And as a tuber, we always say, bottoms up, whenever you get close to those areas. Or do you read the river and find where the current's already going, already moving, and try and join the current in its speed, and it propels you even further. The beautiful thing is, there's this blending of both man's will and God's will that works so well together. If it's all up to me, boy, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of guilt when things go wrong. But if there's another force, a, a greater force like the current I can trust in, even when I make mistakes, even when I go over some difficult sections of the river, I can trust that there's a current that will even use the good and bad decisions I've made to get me where I need to go. Prayer is a lot like these paddles. It's a way in which I'm discerning where's the river going and how do I join God in it? How do I make the proper turns to get in a place where I feel like God can use my experience, my current priorities and responsibilities? How can I discern how God can really direct me to the way he wants me to go? Sometimes it means looking down a particular section of the river here and saying, hey, I want to avoid this. I think I want to head another direction. A lot of our choices are about that kind of pain. You're saying, hey... Uh, let's not do that again. I made a decision like this last time and it didn't go well. So God, I went this time. You got me through it. You were faithful. The current still flowed. But this time I want to go the way that you're directing. I want to try it a different way. I remember when I left my last church, we decided to have a guy's trip. So the last hurrah before I moved. So I said, let's go on a raft trip. We all got a bunch of tubes and we decided to head down the river. But the maps were iffy in this location in Georgia and there was no Google Maps back then. So I said, well, let's just drive to the river, park our cars, 
drive another car, the truck, up about a mile, maybe two miles. We'll hop in, we'll eventually just float back to our cars. <laughs> Sound like a good plan. I had to assume, like, how fast does a, a small river like this really flow? I figured, I don't know, three, four miles an hour? Looks about right. Well, about uh, three hours into my one-mile trip, turned out that uh, the road we took was a little farther than one mile. It turns out these small rivers don't go three or four miles an hour. I know now they go less than one mile an hour. So our wives are getting worried, and the uh, guys are about to have a mutiny on the uh, bad leader and bad planning that happened. And I thought, you know what? I can run faster than this. It's got to be just around the bend. Tell you what I'll do. I'll get out of my tube. I'll go over to the side of the shore, and I'll start sprinting. I'll run down there 200, 300 yards, and I'll be the savior. I'll be the one who rescued everybody from the trouble. So I grab my tube. And, of course, first thing, I don't have shoes on, so I'm trying to run on the side of the banks, rocks and thorns everywhere, and I start sprinting. I mean, it is like, uh, it, it's, it's like a clinic I'm putting on how to sprint. And I get about 10 feet, and I hit a thorn bush. The thing about the side of a riverbank is it is just not made to travel on. It's not made to run on. I mean, look at it. There's trees and thorn bushes. I make it about 10 feet. I run straight into this thorn bush. And I'm working my way through this thing. And I get the thorns off me. I got the tubes still on me. And I run again. I sprint about 6 feet this time. And run into another thorn bush. So I'm getting so frustrated because I can't make it through this thorn bush. But I'm thinking, at least I'm traveling faster than the river. I finally get out of this thorn bush. And I look to my right. And sure enough, all three of my buddies go floating past me, going less than one mile an hour. I think a lot of times that's similar to my discerning of God's timing in my life. Sometimes I get frustrated that God's not going fast enough. His pace isn't what I desire, what I like. So I try and get off the river. I assume that I can do things better, that I can move things faster than God does. And I find myself sprinting directly into a thorn bush. It turns out that God's way isn't always dramatic. It isn't always miraculous. It isn't always parting of red seas. A lot of times it's just the subtle pull of the current, directing you through the good and the bad of your life, but getting you to his destination. And sometimes it's really about trusting his timing, even when you don't like it. You know, often in life I do the same thing. I try to outrun God. I try to get out of what is seemingly his plan for my life and uh, get on the banks and see if I can do a better pace. I'm always amazed that I might go faster initially, but I usually end up in a thorn bush. And I see those who quietly discern God's will float by me without so much hassle, without so much drive or overdrive maybe, and just a peace that seems to surpass understanding. My favorite Proverbs in the Bible says this, it's Proverbs 16.3. Commit your ways to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his path. I love this combination that we do have plans, we do make things ready, and yet there's a greater power in knowing that behind all that is a current. The current of God's will. The current of God working in the midst of the good and the bad. And prayer becomes a way in which I, one, cooperate with God by joining Him in the current. Also, I get myself in a place that I can trust. Trust He knows better than me. Trust that He knows where I'm going even when I don't. And trust that when I'm facing the unknown, I'm trusting somebody who has never been surprised by anything.
So let me talk about those two parts. You leave one part out. On the one side, if it's all up to God, well, let's start with if it's all up to me. If it's all up to me, number one, I can get overwhelmed by guilt. Oh, did I make the wrong decision? By regret? Oh, I should have done something else. Or just drivenness. I, I, I can never analyze enough that I couldn't have analyzed more. And there's two different philosophers. One is Doc Brown from, from Back to the Future who really summarizes the American view on this that's all up to me. At the end of the movie, do you remember he shows up in the flying train and he turns to, to Marty McFly and he says, the future is yours. The future is what you make of it, so make it a good one. And that's sort of the American idea, which is that, boy, I make my own destiny, I make my own choices, and it's all up to me. On the other hand, if you read any uh, Oedipus and the Greeks, they were very fatalistic. Told Oedipus, it doesn't matter what choices you make, you're going to end up killing your father and marrying your mother. No, I'm not. And he spends his whole life, I'm not going to marry my mother, I'm not going to kill my father. And no matter what he did in his life, guess what? He ends up murdering his father, ends up marrying his mother. And so the Greeks taught, choices are irrelevant, destiny will determine your destination. Versus Doc Brown's approach and the American approach is it's really all up to you. And this idea that, that the Bible presents is so powerful because what happens when you make a mistake? What happens when there's a failure? I called several doctors this week and I said, you know, there are times when you're facing life and death situations weekly, daily. If it's all up to you and a child dies in your arms, how do you deal with the guilt of that? And I said, well, you, you couldn't. Death never gets easier. And yet, when you realize that you're not the author of life, you work and you pray to save lives. You pray, God, give me the wisdom. Make me quicker than I think I, I can be. Give me the energy from the sleep I've had to be able to be here for this family. And you so commit your way to the Lord in those situations. And yet, when you have to be with a family losing a child, when you have to grieve with them, to know that it wasn't all up to you is about the only way to be sane. One person I talked to talked about a one-and-a-half-year-old who was waiting for a heart transplant and how they prayed and had everything hooked up and they're praying for a miracle and they worked and prayed and worked and prayed and worked and prayed. But finally, because the transplant hadn't come in in time and because of some complications, this child was no longer a recipient, they knew the child was going to pass away. And they said, the grief we felt could only be tempered by knowing that it wasn't all up to us and that God could give strength even in this moment. And so the mom didn't want their little child to die in a hospital gown. So they unhooked as many things as they could. They went and found a, some clothing and, and the parents got to hold this child in their last hours. And she said, it was actually a sacred moment. She said, I went to the funeral and, and there were just so many tears. This medical person was telling me that the mom came up and comforted me because of this faith in God, that even in the loss of a child, in the mourning and the tears, that there was the hope of heaven and that there was a the hope of seeing this child again. If it's really all up to you, then every mistake is yours. You end up with sort of a Christian karma. And karma is always guilt, guilt, guilt. You should have done more, should have done more. You always should have done more. On the other hand, the passive approach here, when you don't have anything to do with what you do, is if it's all up to God, you become passive and, and very, you become lazy, 
You miss the partnership of doing something with God, and you, you engage in what I call magical thinking, which is why one of my favorite verses is the horse is made ready for battle. You need to prepare. You need to assess. You need to see what you're up against when you're going to battle. Make your horse ready. But victory and deliverance ultimately comes from God. Now, I, I have a tendency to be a horse is made ready for battle. I emphasize that. And this verse reminds me, but you know what? No matter what I prepare, no matter what I do, the outcomes are determined by God. And it saves me from too much of that it's all up to me burden I put upon myself. And we miss the partnership. The partnership of God wanting to invite us in. I got this little video series I do called The Adventures of Mr. Quinn, where my son Quinn and I go tubing and, and we do all kinds of different things together. And, and so lots of people watch it on Facebook and just love seeing the joy of my little guy. And what's amazing is that I wanted to create opportunities to partner with him. And with autism, so often I can be with my son for hours at a time, but he doesn't actually want to interact. He wants to be near me, but doesn't, want to, doesn't talk, doesn't want to interact. And so in one sense, I'm missing the partnership. He's missing the partnership with me. And I never thought I'd ever hear his little voice. And so part of the 20, 40 hours of therapy we do every week to get him to talk is because I want to have a relationship with him. I want to hear his voice. I want him to speak into my life and me to speak into his. I think often when we don't pray, it's like how I feel toward my son. God's like, why aren't you talking to me? Let me give you more words. Let me train you on how to speak. I want you to speak to me. I want to speak to you. I want us to be in partnership together. And when you don't pray and you don't seek God, you miss out on the partnership of life, of doing life with God as a heavenly father who wants to take adventures with you. So the first is the prayer test. Are we really using the paddle to say, God, I'm trying to figure out where you're at work here. Have I really prayed about this? The second thing is the motive test. God really cares about our motives. And often we go to make a decision. We're asking, is it the right thing? And it might be the right thing, but for the wrong reason. So part of the motivation test is asking myself, I want to sort of investigate the canoe. I want to check my motivations for why I'm doing this. And I want you to check your hull for, are these holy motivations or are they holy motivations? Am I really being motivated by self-centeredness? Is this really what's best for the child or what's best because I can tell people about what my child did? Is this really what's best for the team at this moment or is this just going to make me look good? The Bible says all of the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. In other words, you tell yourself your motivations are always good. Now, isn't that the truth? My initial response in every argument I've ever had with my kids, with my wife, is that I'm coming at this from a good place. Even when I'm angry, I'm coming at it from a good place. We always tell ourselves our motivations are pure, but God weighs your spirit your real true motivation. And so when approaching a decision, you need to really step back and say, what's really motivating me here? And when you give your first response, that's primarily your, your, your brain convincing you that you're right. So go to your second question and your third question. There's a CEO who has really made this profound part of his corporate culture. He's a Brazilian CEO, and his name is Ricardo Semler. And he has really, he built his company for I think 3 million to 212 million over about a 10 year period of time. And he said the real secret to building the corporate culture he built was to create a culture of wisdom. He said ever since the Industrial Revolution, we produce cultures of efficiency, which he's not against, cultures of productivity, which he's not against, but not cultures of wisdom. 
And one of the things he has sort of made famous in his corporate culture is ask why three times. Because the first thing, why are we doing this? You give the answer. Well, we're doing this because of such and such. Yeah, but why is such and such so important? Well, because we've always done it that way. Why have we always done it that way? And did what worked 10 years ago, 2 years ago, 18 months ago, is that still the best way to do it now? And he said, when you asked why three times, you're finally going to start finding your own wisdom rather than doing what custom you grew up with, what fear of failure that you're comfortable with. Ask why three times. One of the exercises he participated in, is he said to himself, you know, what if I didn't have 20, 30 more years to live? How would I live my life if I was terminal? He said, I would prioritize things very differently if I was terminal. Interesting, this concept comes out of Psalms. God, teach me to number my days, to not think I have all the time in the world. So he now takes, as part of his practice, what he calls two terminal days. If I was terminal and was going to die in a month, how would I spend two days of my week? The time he's devoting to marriage, the time he's devoting to family, the time he's devoting to going on trips and and, and having adventures with friends and building the kind of friendships that he'd been putting off for decades. He said, this concept of asking, why am I waiting till I'm retired to start living, gave him a new approach to life. So much so, he came back to his company and said, this idea of taking a day out of my week and making it about really carpe diem has so transformed my approach to life and work he told everyone in his company you can have one day off a week if you take a 10% pay cut and he had a huge percentage of his company said we'll do it and he said the whole morale change as people began to take one day a week and saying if my life was short what do I want to not put off Why am I motivated to wait to retirement before I start living my life, before I start building friendships, before I start having the time to connect with my kids or to really make my marriage work? Now he's working in the educational department. How do you create an educational department built on the theory of how do you educate people to be wise, not just to answer tests? So let me go back to this verse I mentioned earlier. And you've heard in the Bible, they talk about the milk of the word, truths you can drink, the meat of the word, things you've got to chew on. The Proverbs are like the hard candy of the Bible. You've got to suck on them for a while and roll it around in your mouth to go, what does that mean? And what does that mean for me? It requires meditation, contemplation, and reflection. So let's read this one together. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. And on first read, you think you know what it means. And it sounds pretty good. I tell God what I'm going to do, he makes me prosperous. But almost all Jewish rabbis, the scholars who study this, say if you really read it, suck on it, think about it, it's actually in reverse order of what you might think. If you commit your works, your deeds, your execution, if you commit, and the word commit means to lean in or to fully roll in on or put all your weight on, if you fully put your weight on, I'm going to execute what God tells me to do, then... Your thoughts, your planning will be established. No, 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 no. Planning comes first and then execution comes second. But here, the proverb reverses it and says, no, 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 no. If you commit to say, even though I don't fully understand it, I'm going to execute what God tells me to do. I'm going to choose to forgive my enemy, though I don't feel like it. 
I'm going to choose to prioritize my marriage even though they don't feel like they're doing their part. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose to give. If you choose and you fully lean in on your works and your execution, God, I'm going to do it your way, then God will make you into the kind of person who can plan successfully. In other words, I don't feel like being humble. I feel defensive when my wife and I are in a fight. But I'm going to choose, God, to instead of being defensive, be open. I'm going to lean in on your saying that being open to criticism, being humble to criticism is the way to go. So I'm going to lean in on that. I'm going to, despite not wanting to do it, I'm going to lean in and commit to being slow to anger and quick to listen. And when you do that, you turn into the kind of person who makes wise decisions. Why? Because you become humble. And when you're humble, you make better decisions because now your pride doesn't block you from hearing input you otherwise would have filtered out. And so God is saying, if you will commit to doing what I say, whether you believe it or not, whether you think it's going to work or not, if you do that, you'll become the kind of person that makes wise, truthful decisions. Which is different from God, here's my plans, bless it, make them execute. And that's why this is so backwards, is that God wants you to see your motivations and become, not just make good decisions, but become the kind of person who makes decisions you can be proud of. So the prayer test, the motivation test, what's really motivating me? And then thirdly, the word test. See, God has actually written down a lot of stuff pretty clearly, and we don't need to be unclear on things he's made clear. You don't have to at any time pray and say, God, I'm thinking about murdering my teenager. What is your will? He's pretty much laid that one out. And yet often, imagine this, you, you hire a nanny to come for a week because you and your spouse are going on vacation and you write everything. Here's the details, here's all the allergies, don't do this, don't do that. And you write it all out. I mean, you spend hours putting all the, the instructions together. And while you're on vacation, the phone is ringing off the hook. Hey, can I, can I give him milk? No, I said he had a dairy allergy. Okay, thanks, thanks. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, what time uh, do we need to be at soccer practice? Page four of all that work I did for you. Page four, it says that practice starts at two o'clock. You pick them up at four. All right. Ring, 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 ring. You'd start to get annoyed, wouldn't you? You'd say, why aren't you reading my clear instructions, which is going to really get rid of some of the, the ambiguity, and then call me with the areas that, that need to be clarified. In the same way, God wrote a book called the Bible, and there's some unclear stuff, sure. There are some things that are hard to figure out, sure, but there's most of it is very easy. Mark Twain once said, it's not the unclear passages of the Bible I worry about, it's the clear ones. In the same way, I would ask you to create a plan, a discipline for Bible reading in your life. You say, I want to dig into the Bible. And here's an easy one to do. The book of Proverbs is about in the middle of your book, middle of the Bible. You can get a Bible out here, we'll give you one free if you want. You can download it, logos.com or YouTube, version. And every day, there's 31 Proverbs, and there's 30 to 31 days in a month. Every day, read the proverb of that number of your day. If it's the 22nd, read Proverbs 22. And you're going to get the resources of the wisest man who ever lived. And he's going to talk about how to handle lust, how to handle family, how to handle anger, how to make wise decisions. Every day, you're going to give input into your life. 
And you're not going to say, God, should I, should I co-sign for this loan? Because you will have read ten times in Proverbs, don't co-sign for loans or you're going to end up affecting your relationships in a negative way. Okay, well, that, you don't need to be unclear in areas God's clear. Should I really blow up here? No. Anger actually is a big problem. You need to handle it righteously. Here's a favorite proverb here. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. What does this say? Be humble enough in all of your decisions to invite people in. A lot of us say, well, I would do that just not with financial stuff. And then we make bad financial decisions. No, no. In decision-making, the more counselors, the more wise people you can get to speak into your life, the more you're going to have plans established because you're not going to be blinded by your own pride, by your own uh, preconceived ideas, your own biases. And the Bible encourages us to bring many people into the process. And so having a, a, a practice of Bible study to get input to God's wisdom, or even if you don't believe the Bible's God's word, at least the world's wisdom. This book has made a lot of people very prosperous, making very wise decisions, avoiding a lot of pains. Even if you don't believe God wrote it, I'm telling you, it's going to help you. But two, the importance of other people. You need a multitude of counselors. Man, how do I parent in this situation? Well, how do we go through marriage during postpartum? How can I be a husband when my wife is pregnant? How can I be a good husband when my wife's going through menopause? How can I be a good husband when, when, we're, when we're facing a job change? Talk to other people who've been through it. Learn the lessons of it. Be humble enough. And if you'll commit to do it, you'll become the kind of humble person who gets input in other areas and your plans will be established. You'll make better decisions everywhere. Remember, we had this church Sunday school class when I was a kid. And so all the dads and sons went tubing down the Mackinac River. We're all in their big tubes. And, and I, my brother and I got way ahead of everybody. And as we got ahead... I see this area of white water, and whenever we go uh, rafting, we'll yell, white water! And we'll go over and we'll, we'll be white water. And, and I get these trees down there, and I almost get sucked underneath this thing. And it's pretty scary. I yell back at my brother, hey, whatever you do, don't come over here, it's dangerous. He's my younger brother. Do you think you listen to me? No, all a younger brother hears when an older brother says, don't come here, is you're trying to hold out on me. He paddles right toward me. So I get sucked under my tube, spit out on the other end, and I turn around and I say, Orion, whatever you do, don't let go of the tube. That'll be the thing that pulls you up. What's the first thing he does? Let's go of the tube. He's now holding on a tree, bear hug, in the middle of the river. Water rushing past him. All the dads catch up. And I'll never forget this moment. All the dads got on the side of the shore, and they grabbed hands. I was sitting on the shore watching as these 10 to 15 guys made this human rope and floated themselves out into the river. And it was long enough that the last one, my father, put his hand on another guy, grabs my brother, and then each of these guys pulled my brother in. It was such an incredible picture of community. Someone in danger, the multiple strengths of multiple people reaching out and helping. We need that in our lives. This summer I got a chance to go whitewater rafting. That's my daughter and my wife and I and a few other people. And... and I went back two days later because the, the class two and three were fun, were them, but I wanted to do some class three and four. So I came back by myself and w- with another five people to do the class fours. And our instructor in the back said, all right, we well, better go over to class four. And when we go over that thing, I just want you to remember that if somebody falls in, you're going to be tempted to help. I'm in charge of getting them out of the water. You've got to listen to me because we might be in trouble. I listened. I heard it. We're going over the class threes. I'm in the front left. And I'm paddling hard, paddling hard. Paddle left, paddle left. I'm paddling. All of a sudden I hear, push. I turn. 
One of our guys fell in. My instinct, I'm going to jump. And he's like, I got him. Pedal left, pedal left, pedal left. And I'm like, I'm not supposed to help. What did he tell me to do? He told, okay, what if the guy, I'm going to trust his instructions. I'm going to trust he knows better than me. And I just kept my head forward like he told me to do. And I'm paddling hard because my job was to make sure nobody else fell out. And often, if we don't know what God says in advance, we get to the rapids, we still have that moment of, does that really sound like good advice? What God's saying? And I was so glad, because he did. He yanked that guy out of the water back in the tube. And because the rest of us were listening to his voice, we navigated the tubes and had a great time. And the word test is knowing his voice, bringing his voice in through the word and through other people, and then saying, I'm going to commit to do what he says even if I don't fully understand it, he's been around longer than I have. The word test, the motives test, and the prayer test. So we've given you this bookmark. We're going over these nine criteria when you make decisions. And today as I talk about prayer, I want to just tell you a little about what prayer does. And I mentioned it already, but let me summarize again. When you begin to pray about decisions, it does two things. It bends you toward the current. God, I'm praying that I can discern where you're working here. And it bends you toward God. What do you want to sift in my own motivations that may not be pure, that may be self-centered, that may be pretty broken? So prayer bends me toward God's work in the world and in myself. And then as I really pray and find out some of my motivations really aren't that great, I become more of a humble person who confesses. I choose to agree with God that what I did was wrong versus being proud and arrogant and say, you can't tell me what to do, God or anybody else. So prayer bends me toward the current, but also prayer is a way of saying, I want to just acknowledge, God, that I'm bent out of shape. I am bent out of shape. I don't even do the things I know are right to do. The things I hate, I find myself doing. God, I need your power. I need your wisdom. I need your strength in my life. Please, God, I'm bent in the wrong direction. Help me to make wise decisions. Well, let me pray for us, because I know for many of us, we want that to be true in our life. God, will you just bend me in your direction so I begin to see and make the kind of decisions you want? Father, I, uh, I confess on behalf of all of us, God, I agree with you that we were bent in the direction of self-centeredness. And it sabotages our marriages, it sabotages our relationship with our kids, it sabotages and sours our workplaces. So, Father, we ask you to bend us in your direction. God, teach us how we can commit our execution to you so that you will make us into the kind of people that love you, know you, and can have plans that are established. But some people are here today and they need comfort because they're going through grief, they're going through uncertainty, Father. Would you give them your comfort? Others, Father, need humility to be able to hear the voices around them that they've blocked out. I just ask you, give them humility that they wouldn't fall into a pit again and again like the fool. Some people here today, Father, they need, uh, they need just straight-up wisdom. And they don't need just the ordinary wisdom. They need the kind of fortified, vaulted wisdom you promised to those who diligently seek you. And I ask that you give them wisdom for very sticky situations as they handle health issues, as they have issues with medical challenges or insurance challenges. God, I ask that we'd be a community who tries to pursue you and use your very criteria for making decisions, and yet we will 
have confidence that even if we make the wrong decision, you're the kind of God that can work all things together for good to those who love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Next week we'll look at the hardest question, I think, which is, given my current responsibilities, is this the best decision? See you all next week.